Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Joao Battaglia and Luis Battaglia, co-founders of Fermat's Library. Fermat's Library is a platform for annotating papers. Each week, they send out a paper annotated by their community. Some recent ones include Birds and Frogs by Freeman Dyson and Von Neumann's First Computer Program by Donald Knuth. They've also built a Chrome extension for the archive called Librarian, which allows you to get direct links to references, do bibtex extraction, and make comments on papers. You can find them at formatslibrary.com. All right, here we go. You guys are brothers, right? Yeah, yeah. we are. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He's the older one. I'm two years younger. Yeah. Okay. And um, what made you want to start Fermat's Library? So, oh, so just for the people that don't know what it is, uh, Fermat is a platform for annotating papers. And so if you want to think about it, you imagine a PDF view in your browser, and then you have annotations on the side that support LaTeX and Markdown. And so you can add annotations in parts of papers that you think are particularly tough to understand, or you think there could you could add more content there. But so it's something that we've we've done. We, the 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 four of us that started Format, we all have a technical background, mm-hmm. and so after college, we kept on reading papers. And every once in a while, we we had this internal journal club where we would read a paper and present it to to the others. So, um, so I remember, for instance, presenting a few years back, presenting the Bitcoin paper mm-hmm. to to Louise and Mika which don't have a CS background. And so you, you kind of have to go into, for instance, for the Bitcoin, you might have to go into, okay, what's an, a hash function? What's a public, public key encryption? And so we were already doing this. And we knew that you're, you also have this behavior offline in places like universities. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to take that experience and bring it online. Mm-hmm. And we thought there was a lot of content that, that you end up producing while you're trying to read a paper, which, which can be the most, like the most dense, uh, piece of content that a human can read sometimes, right? The, the language can be incredibly Spartan and, and sometimes, uh, like there's a step in some paper that they say, Oh, this should be obvious. But then you mm-hmm. look at it and it's like, okay, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we knew that there was a lot of content there that you end up producing while trying to understand a paper. And we wanted to bring that, uh, online. Um, because Luis, you were in physics yeah. before. I studied physics together with Mika um, and Joao and Timer went to MIT. Timer studied economics and you studied CS. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the papers are around physics, math, um, economics, biology, uh, c- uh, CS, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was, you kind of like solved the cold start by just annotating yeah, yourself. Exactly. Right. And yeah. now it's more about getting the author in there. Exactly. That yeah. was the kind of the growth act. We start our first paper was the Bitcoin paper. Yep, and so, still the most commented, right? Yeah, that one has a, a good number of comments. It has been there for the longest, and it is um, it was quoted and or just there are a bunch of news sites that have pointed back to it. Oh, okay. Uh, it's like okay, if you want to read it, <laughs> go funny. to the annotated version. But we had uh, we had a few like cool people comment there. Um, yeah. uh, Lawrence Lessig commented yeah. on the Bitcoin paper. Um, a bunch of people from the Bitcoin community exactly comment in there. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. But the, the larger goal with Format is to try to move things in the right direction, meaning move science towards what people call open science. Mm-hmm. And so that that is encompasses a number of things from open data, which means just sharing the data that you've used uh, for publishing whatever research you might be publishing, and you want to share that 
uh, and make that easily accessible to people so that if they want to replicate the results that you got or use it in their own research, they have an easy time doing that. So that's open data. You also have um, just publishing the code that you used or the algorithms that you've used and making those more easily available uh, to people. Um, there's also open publishing, which means just publishing in uh, papers that are not behind or in journals that are not behind paywalls. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, there's a lot of things that, that are, uh, within open science, uh, all of those. And then there's also, so we want to push things in that direction and also try to build a platform that makes it easier for people to collaborate. Mm. And, and we think that there are a lot of things that could be happening nowadays or where people could be collaborate scientists could be collaborating remotely a lot more yeah. than, than they are, or that's at least, uh, uh, the way we think. And, um, but it's starting to change where we've had the, for the, the paper there, those, um, yeah, I think we like, this is actually a trend. We're seeing more and more people collaborating online around papers. So for instance, there's this famous example, uh, around the, uh, problem called the Erdos mm -hmm. discrepancy. And, um, this problem is a famous problem that was posed by Paul Erdos, which is like this famous mathematician 80 years ago. And Terence Tao, uh, the field's medalist was trying to solve the problem and he, he put it on his blog that he was trying a certain approach to, to solve the problem. And then there was this guy from Germany that just <laughs> wrote a comment there, like the size of a tweet. And he said that, um, the, the Erdos problem had a Sudoku like flavor. And that's some of the machinery that they were using to solve the Sudoku problem could be used there. And mm -hmm. that was actually the, the key to crack the, the problem. And they ended up publishing the, the, a solution to the Yerdos discrepancy mm -hmm. problem, uh, which was probably one of the biggest milestones in, in number theory in 2016. And that was all thanks to, to, to a comment on his blog and to the fact that they were collaborating online around solving that problem, yeah. which is also, a, a, was also a polymath. A problem. The Polymath Project was a, a project started by uh, these other fields medalists called Tim Gowers, and they were trying to, uh, uh, it was actually a social experiment mm -hmm. to see if it was possible to solve uh, math problems online and, um, mm -hmm. you know, collaborating around math problems online. And, um, yeah, and they were able to solve it hmm. thanks to that comment. Because you kind of see, right, you, you look at it at GitHub. And then you think of the impact that GitHub has had yep. for open source. Open source, of course, existed much before GitHub, but uh, but it has really allowed a lot more people to come in and be able to get into open source or open source and start contributing. And uh, there are a number of other really interesting platforms. Like, right, you have Wikipedia just for more general knowledge, or you have Stack Overflow for just programmers helping each other. And uh, we think that there could be. Uh, Something similar to that, but for science in general. Right. People... Well, because did, did you listen to the Rogan with uh, Peter Tia? No. I did, uh, parts of it. Okay. Mika, Mika listened to that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really good one. And he talks about, um, I don't know if they're talking about the archive in particular around publishing papers, but he okay. talks about having full-time staff. Oh, yeah. Just scrubbing the data, looking for interesting yeah. information coming out. Hmm. Um, and again, like in the context of Stack Overflow, that's the place where like programmers find yeah. specific answers to problems. Exactly. Whereas with the archive, like good luck. Yeah. Good luck finding that stuff. Yeah. And so have you guys thought about addressing like just discoverability in the context of particular fields? The, the, it's a really tough problem. Um, yeah. Like 
for instance, paper recommendations, it, it's really hard to... Because you're just doing one a week right now. Yeah. In yeah. addition to the browser extension. And and we also have our tool that is used internally at um, universities and research groups for people that they are reading papers together and, and they add annotations. There. Yeah. But, uh, but for now, uh, we have the weekly journal. So we release a paper every week that we select and, and we annotate it or somebody in the community annotates it. And then we have um, the archive extension mm -hmm. that, that adds a bunch of features on top of archive, like, um, um, like BibTeX extraction, reference extraction, and comments. Yeah. And, and eventually, definitely like recommendation and uh, recommendation engine or, and making it easier to discover papers that are relevant to you. Yeah. That's something we definitely want to add mm -hmm. um, uh, onto our archive extension. But it's a tough problem. It is. Yeah, initially we started uh, formats as a, as John said, as a journal club, and then um, we saw that you know people liked the interface, the yeah. commenting interface, and uh, liked reading the annotations. So now we are starting to expand and turn formats into more of a, a platform, and that's why we 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 decided to do the the archive chrome extension because archive for people that don't know what it is, it's basically a place where papers leave before they go to journals mm -hmm. in the form of preprints. So they are like drafts before they go to journals. And, um, and what we did is we built a Chrome extension that basically, um, al allows people to see all the commenting interface mm -hmm. on archive papers. And so you, you don't have to go to a, to another website. You're just reading archive papers and you see the comments on the site. If you have the Chrome extension installed. Well, and a lot of these papers don't even have comments. They on don't page. like best case you're emailing the author. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They don't know. have. Okay. Uh, um, so what archive does, it's basically they just host papers. Yeah. Uh, that's the core functionality of archive. Um, and so, uh, one of the things that we noticed is that especially for, um, areas like machine learning and deep learning archive is, is super important because the, the papers are, the new papers are coming, are coming out, um, at such a high rate that people don't wait, uh, before the papers go to journals, before they start working on top of it and using the, 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 the stuff that other people discover. So, um, all the papers are published on archive. And so you need a way, you need a way to distinguish, distinguish good quality work from bad work. Um, if you are reading a paper on archive that hasn't been peer reviewed or mm -hmm. something about machine learning. And I think that's why our, uh, the librarian extension is so important in fields uh, such as machine learning. And so learning. does the librarian extension have a rating mechanism as well? Like how do you distinguish good from bad work? Right now it's, it's only through the comments, okay. but we are actually thinking about implementing some some sort of rating system for for yeah. papers and we're we're probably gonna also we've been thinking about that for a while now and it's not we're probably gonna run a few surveys to our audience mm -hmm. to because you could do it in a number of ways like rating a paper you could do it obviously there's like likes or dislikes or upvotes and downvotes so you could either just have an holistic rating for the whole paper you could also imagine rating it on a number of different um, aspects of the paper, right? It could be about, okay, how big is their data set if they're using, um, some data set or, um, what, what do you think about their methods? So you could have a more complex rating system. And so we've been thinking about that a lot and we're just trying to figure out what makes the most sense mm -hmm. there. But that's also definitely in, like, we would love to add that to, mm -hmm. to, yeah, to our cut or to the, our Chrome extension for our cut. Exactly. 
Yeah. So how do you think the collaboration plays out then? Because I, I understand how, you know, say for instance, you know, you're a physicist, you start commenting on someone else's paper, you start a discussion that creates a new project, mm-hmm. right? Do you think you'll go further than there? Like, are we, are you talking about like forking and that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's, um, I think you could, uh, there's, there's a lot of things that you could do if you, once you have, um, a platform that is more, um, that has more people in it and that they're doing more stuff in it. And so that's why the way we've been growing format is with a goal uh, far in the future where we are a much broader platform. Yeah. And so right now, but right now we were focused mostly on solving problems that people have nowadays. And actually the, we were largely inspired for our archive extension by the survey that the archive guys did where they, right, they had, I don't know how many people, but they surveyed the people that use archive and, and, and then published a paper where they describe the problems that those people mm-hmm. w- reported, uh, while using archive and the things that they most wanted to see, the features that they most wanted to see. And then the archive folks just said, Hey, we're just gonna, we're gonna be the platform to build upon and we're not gonna do all of these things that people want, would like us to do. But we're, but here it is. This is what people wanna see. Mm-hmm. If there's anybody else that wants to work on this, uh, here are the results of the survey. And, and since then, they've actually done a pretty great job of like building an, a- an API and wanting to become more of a platform. And so, um, there's a lot of ways that we envision that you could have, um, uh, collaboration mm-hmm. around science. And so, yeah, like forking, uh, like forking a paper or, or forking some type of research. Or data. Exactly. Or, or data. Um, there's a lot of things that you could do, um, there. We, it's not something that we're focused on right now. Right now we're just trying to, gotcha. to solve these problems that people have pointed out and create a place where people can, uh, just post comments and discuss a, mm-hmm. around uh, a yeah. paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An yeah. example of the problems that people mentioned was like, for instance, reference extraction. So if you go to a PDF, you have uh, at the bottom of the paper, you have the references that they used. Uh, and most of the times when people want to, to, to search the references, they have to copy the, the text in the PDF, put it on Google and try to find the link to the paper. And one of the things that we did with our Chrome extension is we allow that. They just click on a button in the Chrome extension and then they see uh, a list of references with links to the papers. So yeah. that was one of the, the features that was most requested by the archive users. Yeah. And our idea was initially we wanted really to convince people to install the Chrome extension. And so let's solve the hair on fire problems that mm-hmm. they are describing here. And then once we have people using the Chrome extension and, and uh, then we can expand into like open collaboration around papers since they are already there. Um, yeah, so that was the, do you guys know of anyone working on, um, uh, on publishing negative results? This is something I've been fascinated with. And like, basically the problem is that like, as an academic, you're not incentivized to publish negative results because you want to publish things that have high impact so you can get a job or a tenure position or just get people to even care about your work. Right. Yeah. So they don't publish. Do you know anyone like working on that? And I know of researchers that are, they're studying that field a lot, but unfortunately for some of these things, you just, um, that's, that's a very large problem and people are becoming more aware of that. And with that, you, uh, like you have negative results. You also have like, uh, people doing a lot of research into like P value hacking or, yeah. or you should explain which, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so P value, it's essentially 
um, a standard that people use in order to know if the results that you have obtained, that you have obtained out of some experiment that you've run are worthy of being published. And, um, and so, so, and that has worked for the most part that has worked fine until now, but, uh, or I mean, that's arguable, but, but people are looking into it and, and, and thinking, okay, should we do things differently? And should we be much more stricter with, what's considered the golden standard yeah. to, to publishing. And we've thought of, uh, doing things there with, uh, with Fermat or like, mm. um, just, just so that if you're looking at a paper to have an idea, okay, uh, how relevant is this paper? Exactly. This is, yeah. this is more specific for certain areas. Like if you're talking about, um, medicine or biology where that is really important, like the, the statistical significance of the yeah. results that you're okay. presenting. It, it, that's all, right? That's, that's the most important thing. And so we, we've thought of, um, doing something with format there, either via some API where you could uh, like send us the DOI of a paper and we would send you like some information regarding the mm. p value or something or with the Chrome extension where, um, where you'd see that that information um, displayed very prominently saying, Hey, like these, this might be, there might be some peak value hacking here, or this, hmm. or this is very solid research. Cause there is a very uh, big problem and people are realizing how, how prevalent it is, especially in things like uh, economics and, hmm. and uh, biology, biology, nutrition, nutrition. Yeah. I mean, it came about, I was just talking to a friend who's doing a, a PhD at Cambridge in bio yeah, and, it's a big thing. Yeah, and only by attending a conference in the states did he realize that there was someone in Australia working on the exact same problem as him concurrently, and they're failing at the same types of experiments. But because they don't publish, publish. them, okay. yeah. like no one knows the results, no one knows the methods, and essentially, like these you know traveling salesman type problems that people are so excited about quantum for, like trying all these permutations are happening at a smaller scale, but no one's publishing anything. So yeah. like the progress isn't happening. Yeah. And the, it, part of it is just the way research is done and you come into it and you're trying to find some correlation usually. Yeah. Right? You will be trying to find some trend in the data and you, and you, whether it, you know, you, you, you are going to usually have that bias. You're trying to find some correlation in public and publishing that. And, and so, yeah, it, it, you might need to change uh, things. Uh, dramatically in order to st to get people to start publishing negative results mm -hmm. which which are like could be incredibly useful for yeah. for other researchers yeah that's yeah but there there are a bunch of people um working on that there's there's this researcher at Stanford I'm forgetting his name it, it's John and then I forget his last name, but he actually just went on this podcast econ talk and he oh talked, really yeah. I love econ talk yeah that's so great. you should listen to 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 that podcast and actually timer has been talking to to that professor i think he's a professor at stanford and he, yeah and he is he he's he, he is analyzed uh more um this subject but more relating to to economics i believe but yeah he's found a lot of the things that we're talking about yeah. here like they're prevalent also in economics cool yeah uh, let's go into the Twitter questions. So we have a ton of questions. You guys are very popular on Twitter. So congrats on your great following. Um, let's see. Uh, let's start with something broad. Uh, Tanner uh, Goblinstein asks, what are the most interesting papers you read in the past couple of years that are not widely known? That, uh, that's, that's interesting. We end up, like, we, I end up reading 
all sorts of papers yeah. from different areas. Like How some, do you get the papers actually? It's just like it's a just random walk. <laughs> really? It's yeah. a random walk. It's or, funny. Yeah. Or sometimes you'll think, for instance, I, I, a few months ago, I got like a, a, a Fitbit to track like my sleep. And so I, yeah. I, I was, I wanted to read papers about, um, sleep and, uh, and so that just got me into like a random walk around like uh, research around sleep. And then I found a bunch of interesting things. I ended up annotating a paper about a big study in Finland that was done um, re regards to the association between sleep and mortality. There are a bunch of really interesting uh, things that I learned from there, for instance, that like it, if you sleep less than seven hours, that's associated with higher mortality. But if you sleep more than eight hours, uh, that is also associated with higher mortality. Really? Yeah. So, so have you changed your life based on that? Yeah. No, I try. Well, not that I was usually more on the end of not sleeping sure enough, that, yeah. but, uh, but the, the, there was also another thing from that research that apparently sleep quality doesn't matter as much, at least for mortality, which is, oh, which okay. is kind of wow. counterintuitive, but it seems that just sleep quality is very closely related to to the amount of sleep that you're getting. Okay. So like seven hours of like, okay, sleep versus seven hours of great sleep. That's kind of hard to distinguish. Seriously. So you like sleep on an airplane your whole life apparently. and live as long. Uh, not, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Apparently maybe your life will be a little bit more miserable, but, but, uh, so, so it's hard sometimes to pick uh, the favorites, but, um, there is one, for instance, there's one that is also kind of random, but, uh, it's a published a paper published in the nineties about, uh, um, the Simpsons paradox and the hot hand phenomena in basketball. So the hot hand phenomena in basketball is right. You, you, you think that, okay, because they just made, uh, they just made a, a field goal, like the next one, they have a higher chance of making it. And so there's this researcher that in the nineties looked, um, at a data set from the Celtics to, to see if, uh, for free throws, if mm -hmm. that, if that was true. And so, and before they, they, they had asked students at Stanford and Cornell, like a hundred students, if they thought that, okay, if they just made, uh, the first free throw is the, for the second one, are they higher? Did they have a higher chance of making it or yeah. not? And there was something like six, 68 of the hundred students that were asked that agreed. And they thought that that was true. And these are like people from Stanford and Cornell. Yeah. And so then you, they, they looked at this and, um, and, uh, so what they found back in the nineties, what they found was that actually that seemed not to be the case, right? That, uh, from, uh, your second free throw, uh, is not, you're not more likely to make it if you made mm -hmm. the first one, mm -hmm. but what they found is that you're just more likely to make it on your second one. Objectively. Significantly. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so, and so this was done in the nineties with like, I don't know how many free throws, but maybe like 5,000. They looked at some data from the Celtics. Just across the Celtics. Yeah. Okay. And then I, I went and got a data set from Kaggle with like 600,000 free throws. Free throw shots? And, Whoa. and I reran the same, um, right? Reran the same algorithms that they ran for the study in the nineties and then looked at what the results were. And yeah, and so the, the pattern is pretty clear that just on their second free throw, they're just much better at it, uh, significantly, regardless of, of their first one. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, and it doesn't matter as much that it doesn't matter if they made their first one or, or if they missed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that paper kind of then tried to explain, uh, why people, uh, 
um, think that there is a hot hand phenomena, and that is related to the Simpsons paradox, which um, which for people that are not rela- that don't know what the Simpsons paradox is, it's also really kind of changed um, my worldview a little bit once <laughs> I learned more about the Simpsons paradox. Okay. But uh, but it's basically what it says is that you can uh, get two. Uh, valid conclusions out of the same data depending on how you split it. So an example, an example is, for instance, that between 2000 and like 2013, the um, the average uh, or the median wage for high school dropouts in the U.S. has dropped. Uh, for high school graduates, it also dropped. For uh, people with an undergrad degree, it dropped. And for people with uh, yeah, a graduate degree or higher, it also dropped. So across the board for all of those segments, the median wage dropped, but, uh, but in aggregates, it went up. Hmm. And so, and so you look at it and it's like, okay, what's going on here? Um, and it turns out is that what happened is that a lot more people got a degree. So it just, they just shifted towards, um, higher education. And, and, but so that's why you get on average, uh, uh, it going up and then for each one of these segments it goes down and so the simpsons paradox is that depending on how you cut the data yeah you might get um different results but that could be valid in this case it's pretty easy to understand that you should be the, uh, like what the right way it, uh, that you what's the right way to look at this data but in some other cases it's not clear whether or not you should include this variable and hmm. cut the data in some different way and so relating it back like what, for this basketball issue what it was is that if you looked um, the, the, the results were different, whether you, you looked on a player by player, uh, or if you looked at the aggregate, once, once you collapse it all into the same table, you yeah. get different results rather than when you looked at, uh, at it, um, player by player. And so, yeah, if you, if you collapse it, I think I forget exactly the, the way it went, but if you collapse, I, it, it might've been that you, you indeed saw um, you didn't see the hot hand phenomenon, but if you looked at it player by player, you saw it. And so they're arguing that that's why people add the idea. That's why you get like 68 students out of a hundred saying that they believe in the hot hand phenomenon. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah. So some of the papers, like that's really random. It's just <laughs> like, it's funny. You're getting these just like little tidbits of trivia. Out yeah, of it all. Yeah. But is it, has it been relevant to you in terms of physics? I mean, you're basically, you're working on software now, right? Yeah. But, but I, I, yeah. yeah, I also end up discovering really cool physics, uh, papers. So for instance, I, I my two favorite papers are actually re, were written by Freeman Dyson. Mm-hmm. One of them is the, the, when he proposed the concept of a Dyson sphere, they are, it's just one page and he, he basically explained how, uh, uh, an advanced civilization would need more energy than the energy that we can generate on earth so we would have to go to a to a star and build a cap around the star to extract the energy of a star but it's funny because it's it's like with really simple math and physics uh, equations he, he, he was able to derive okay is this sphere stable uh is it going to eat uh, uh, indefinitely and so it's it's a really yeah. interesting paper um and the other one that i really like is is one about a Feynman's derivation of schrodinger equation and also written by freeman dyson um and it just shows uh you know Feynman's intuition about quantum mechanics and it's also really simple and and easy to read even if you don't have a physics background hmm. um but it, it, one of the things that i that i i, I 
noticed from from like trying to find papers and annotating all these papers was that uh, you know in the 60s and 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 uh, all like through the 20th century all these discoveries and all these papers were mostly like one two pages and yeah like the it's 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 so fun it's and also fairly simple to read but um the discovery of the neutron it's like maybe one column just uh, the discovery <laughs> of the positron uh like uh, the, these the dyson sphere uh, paper they're really what? really yeah. short papers and and uh, fairly accessible why do you think they've gotten so long is it sort of like you know david foster wallace citing a million things because he doesn't have confidence or like... <laughs> i think is it's also a consequence of a field developing yeah you just have uh, uh you know more complex uh, uh questions and 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 so it's harder to to write they're also a little bit more detailed as to the methodology and the 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 format of papers has gotten a little bit uh, more formal in that sense okay. where people follow a very specific format and and I think that has added on to it. Yeah. But yeah, nowadays they tend uh, like the gravitation wave the like gravity. that we annotate. Yeah. That, that's relatively that's what like 15 pages maybe. Maybe it would be interesting to analyze like the 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 constraints in terms of size that the yeah. journals were imposing. Yeah. Like. Yeah. 50 or 60 years ago compared to what they are doing now um if they are like forcing people to write they were forcing people to write shorter pages well, they, shorter papers back then uh not sure but hmm. uh but i mean like if the the discovery of the the, the positron paper was published today i bet it wouldn't be just a single column yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well are, are they intended to be re more reproducible now um good question maybe maybe um yeah i think or maybe it's just more complex problems that they are tackling now yeah it yeah. might be might be might be the case yeah yeah it's 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 definitely not going back it seems like you don't really see the yeah. a, a trend anywhere of shorter papers but uh, yeah it's interesting yeah you that go back cool. to the 60s and 50s and it was pretty nuts yeah. man glory days yeah <laughs> we, we, uh, yeah. all right cool so uh let's go to another question uh polaris 7 asks what are the necessary ingredients in a good and impactful, uh, good and impactful science writing? Hmm. This is also a good question. Um, I don't, I don't think that I'm qualified to, to, <laughs> or like I haven't, uh, um, published that many papers to, 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 to know that. But one of the things that we noticed, or at least I noticed from, from, um, reading papers is that sometimes it's not like the, the discovery paper that is the most impactful paper. Um, so, for instance, I, I just remember when when um, quantum electrodynamics was was um, discovered, there were three guys working on that problem. So Feynman, uh, Schwinger, and Tomonaga, and they were sort of working independently on that problem, and um, and publishing papers on quantum electrodynamics. And the the most impactful paper was actually um, um, published by Freeman Dyson, who at the time. Took, took the time to analyze, uh, the, uh, um, all the work and kind of, uh, unified the, 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 the work of Feynman, Tomonaga and Schwinger, wrote a paper that, uh, helped other researchers understand what quantum electrodynamics was back then and, um, helped really spread, uh, uh their work so it was actually the most impactful uh, paper so in other words yeah clear writing exactly yeah clear writing yeah, at the yeah. Time. it's also i mean the question here is impactful scientific writing and so you have 
of course, writing papers. And then you also have um, just scientific writing in the sense of making some concept more um, explaining that to a general, more general audience. And so I think there, there, um, there's also, yeah, it's also the same where you want to make it clear and you want to make it accessible. But, but for instance, even like something like the Bitcoin paper where it it is like, and I, I mean, I studied photography in college and even like it took me a few reads through it to, to actually get it. And the, and it's a, a beautiful paper, but uh, but it's definitely not. It's a very Spartan language, and mm-hmm. you want to read every sentence. And and so, um, it can be very challenging to to approach it. And uh, I think definitely, it all you always benefit if you can make it as clear and accessible as possible, because um, mm-hmm. you never know like the the audience that is going to be end up reading your paper. Mm. You can, you, of course, you can expect other people in your field are going to read it, but sometimes uh, uh, things can can be useful, especially like interactions between math and physics. Things can be Absolutely. useful in different fields. And so I think it's always beneficial for science if you yeah. if you try to make it as accessible. And yeah. what does impact mean? Does yeah. it mean number well, of that, That's a question as well. Yeah. The, did you see that one no. from Adam? No. Uh, Adam Baybutt asks the basically the metrics for value add. Yeah, exactly. Metrics. What does yeah. what does impact mean? You know, if it's the number of uh, citations that you get, or just the number of people that you know learn about a certain subject because of a paper. So mm-hmm. in 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 that way, a review paper can have a really big impact compared to a discovery paper. Yeah. And so it's it's one of the problems that we also think uh, about a lot. Um, these metrics and what are the incentives um, in science and what makes people, uh, you know, want to publish a paper or, or um, you know, why should people worry about um, clarifying a paper and make it making it understandable to as as many people as possible? Yeah. Do they have the incentives to do that? How can you create incentives to do that? Right. And um, and then sometimes, you know, if if you're just if the metric is just number of citations, sometimes it's not aligned to to making the paper understandable and comprehensible to a large audience. Right. Yeah. I mean, is that a, is that a question that you guys have to tackle? Because you know, on one hand, you want to illuminate these papers that people could potentially learn from, but then on the other hand, you're running a site with content, right? And you want things that are going to capture attention. So I, I saw you have the Charlie Munger uh, posts on there. Right, uh, um, Mika annotated the, the Charlie Munger um, yeah. paper. Okay, our other co-founder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like squarely non-technical paper, but Charlie Munger has millions of fans across exactly. the world. Right. Yeah, so exactly. you kind of have to balance those two things. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's not easy, and, and and citations are definitely a proxy, right? If, if the paper is getting cited a lot, it has some sort of importance, but uh, but it's definitely not perfect. And if you look at the most cited papers in these different fields, you might be surprised that they might not be the ones that you expect it to be. I certainly remember looking at like the most cited papers in computer science, and they're definitely very impactful. But um, you might have, uh, some of them. I remember reading through those ten, and some of them I had never heard about before. Um, and so, yeah, and 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 sometimes very important. Um, well, this is more specific for for certain fields. Very important. Uh, concepts or discoveries never really get uh published in one paper that then gets a ton of citations mm-hmm. or it, it it that knowledge gets spread in some other way and so there are yeah citations that are not perfect i but i i will i wouldn't say that we have um 
a great answer for that. Okay. What's what's a better proxy and how you should go about it? Uh, and I don't think um, anybody really right now has uh, a better answer to, or not that not that we've heard about. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting problem. Yeah. We'll see what what people start using um, in the future, um, because yeah, you could you could measure yeah, impacts or how many how many people are talking about it on social media or so many blog posts are written many. about this paper exactly. or if you have code uh, you know if you have a public repo how many forks uh, do you have uh, uh, on your repo uh, yeah or like for certain and and then it, it it depends on field by field right so if you take bio then bio papers or can can have a very direct um can be used very directly, say in in industry, right? You can publish a paper about a drug, and then that can be used worldwide and save lives. So, so there, like for for that field, maybe you can. There are a bunch of other metrics that you could use there to calculate the impact of a paper. Yeah. But for the more traditional science, like physics and math, <coughs> sorry, um, yeah, that's it's hard. Hmm. Okay. It's hard. Hmm. Um. Question up top, uh, Arsalan Yarvesi asks, uh, it's basically about working in um, public and in the speed of publishing. They say, since scientific papers usually go uh, through scrutiny and evaluation before getting published, how do you cope with not being um, always updated and up to speed in a world with daily news and contributions? This kind of relates to what we were talking about before in relation to people publishing to the archive before they really test it out. Um where do you guys fall in that dynamic of like publishing as soon as possible, like with something like machine learning where things mm-hmm. are just getting put out all the time versus going through a peer review for getting something out? Hmm. Uh, and this, this kind of loops back loops into peer review, which yeah. is a whole world onto itself that yeah. people are talking a lot about. Um, for us generally, or for our, say for a weekly journal, we, we generally are not publishing the the most recent research, mm-hmm. and uh, there is definitely like sometimes there's a lot of uh, us having to get uh, to catch up to even. Uh, I remember annotating a, a paper about like this machine learning algorithm to play one um, one on one poker, mm-hmm. and this was like out of my league. I had to go like spend a good amount of time there researching it and and also figuring out okay how relevant is this i also don't because you know i'm not in the field so it's hard for me to gauge okay what's the impact of this paper so um yeah there's there's sometimes it takes us a lot of a lot of reading up before we can actually say okay this is worth um it's worth publicizing and, and making and having uh, our audience or it's towards our stamp of approval and say, Hey, you should read this. I think you, you like it. And it, it can take a while sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but in the future, like looping back to peer review, that's also something that I think, um, uh, it, the system nowadays is, does not seem to be perfect mm-hmm. for the way, the way things work nowadays. And we would, we would love to see either via Vermont or, or, or some other platform to try to, to tackle that. And try to to do something uh, to make um, the peer review uh, a better system, or or to change it significantly. I think there's a lot of work left to be done mm. there, mm. which can have a very significant impact in science. Right? That that's part of like the most one of the most important aspects of science is just okay, very, having a very skeptical mindset, looking at it uh, yeah. with a very critical eye, 
and uh, and seeing okay is this is this something that we can build upon is this something that we're going to add to our foundations to build more science upon this and and so that's a very important aspect of science and and i think it's um it, 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 it's not perfect and could be better yeah so anvil rotterdam asks have you ever thought about building a tool for annotating books something like what patrick collison was talking about in this thread where he basically says, I'd pay a lot more for books if I could see the highlights, annotations, and marginalia of friends or people I follow. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I think it's, it's actually a really, a really good question. And, um, and we have a friend, uh, Jess Riedel from the Perimeter Institute. He's a, a researcher there that writes about these, um, wrote about these on his blog. And, um, and I think that besides annotating uh, academic papers, it also makes total sense to annotate books and, and especially, um, kind of introduct, uh, introductory books, uh, introductory books about science. Um, and he gives this example of, of a book that is used by thousands of students to learn, uh, classical mechanics called Goldstein. Mm-hmm. And, um, there is a section on that book, uh, where they, 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 um, talk about these, um, transformation called the Legendre transform. And, uh, he does a bad job at explaining what it is. And, but, uh, apart from that uh, section, the rest of the book is awesome. It's really, it's really nice if you want to learn classical mechanics. But, um, if I want to write a book that uh, does a better job at explaining the Legendre transformation, it has to be net better than the Goldstein book right. so that anyone will adopt that book. Otherwise, people just keep using the, the, the Goldstein book. So, uh, it would make sense for, for books to, 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 to be annotated and also be open source so that in that sense, you would just, uh, you know, commit a new chapter, uh, a new explanation for that and, uh, keep all the, the, the other chapters and then just change that bit. Yeah. Instead of having to write a new book and then convince people to adopt your book, yeah, just because of that. So I think it makes total sense to 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 do that oh, yeah. with, with yeah. more introductory. No, and we we've thought about that the the type of things that you could do. Um, if you if you had some platform where you could right where you could have um, books that kept being updated, and you could have okay, this is the standard for learning calculus mm-hmm. where you. This just, you know, th- this is constantly being up to date. You're adding exercises to it. People are forking it. Like you, if you need more information about this, you're not understanding it. You could deep dive, you could deep dive into it and you have a bunch of additional content that is attached to it. Really feels like something that, that should exist. And we've thought about it, uh, like about doing something with Vermont for that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's so many things. But just, in terms of copyright, are there massive issues there, or, or is that possible? I think some of the, um, some you might be facing some of the same challenges that Wikipedia is okay. is facing to an extent. Um, then, uh, yeah, it, it's it's it would, it would I think it would depend a lot on the on the format that is used. Uh, I do think there's. Uh, for something like this, you'd probably benefit from from having some editor or like a team of editors yeah. to curate and to see okay what like should we add this should we not to an extent to to be some cu- to be a curating voice uh, in terms of copyright yeah you could run into some issues there well some of these especially the classic books like uh on electromagnetism are like they're out of copyright yeah yeah a lot of yeah i mean are. my my impression was that these are uh 
maybe even like current books coming out like mm. popular fiction even mm-hmm. re- as annotated by oh, X yeah. famous mm-hmm. person um yeah. so I, I mean maybe if they gave away their notes for free and they were just the layer on top then oh, you're yeah. good. uh but if you wanted to you know resell your own version of the book mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting there's also some right there is uh some some legislation well, well there's fair use where mm-hmm. you you can um, use a piece of content if you're adding onto it or like, right. This is why you can, you can have like a, a video on YouTube with a snippet from a movie. If you're reviewing it, there's some, some precedent there for, for doing this type of thing. Um, but yeah, but for more general books, I also agree that, that, uh, it'd be amazing because we were just talking about this. Um, we've talked about this for, for a while now, but right. Cause you read a book and the, the purpose of that book is not only to, for you to absorb all the knowledge that is there, but it's also to get you thinking about, uh, about what's being uh, talked about in the book. And then you might reach some other conclusion and you might go on a tangent. And uh, when you're reading it, um, that, that knowledge might never be shared with anybody else. You might just, um, read it yourself and you think, and okay, Oh, this just made me think about uh, something else. And it would be really like, there's a lot of knowledge that is being lost. And uh, it would be great if you could capture it in some way. The Amazon Kindle Highlights site is one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Yeah. You, have you ever done that? We, like, we have Kindles, but we haven't explored it. Oh, Amazon. yeah. So there's a whole web interface for looking at all of your highlights across oh. all of your Kindle books. It's not good. So you, do you use it for anything? I mean, sometimes I go back. So like the the best way that I've found for me personally to retain is to buy the audio book and go through a book a couple times hmm. and then yeah. it, my retention goes way up. But occasionally I'll be just like, oh, what was that passage in, you know, whatever book. And I'll go back onto Amazon and you can oh, like it's, dig. It's from Amazon. Yeah. And you can dig through your highlights from your Kindle. I think I've seen like a startup that does that in a better way. Kind uh, of pulls all your highlights and organizes them. Yeah. I, I, I remember looking into this, but what, what, uh, what I've, what I've started doing is, well, if I'm ever, I also use Kindle. And so that's, um, I don't do, I don't usually don't, don't write annotations via Kindle some way or highlighting. Yeah. I usually don't use it for that. But if I'm reading a physical book uh, over the past, whereas before, maybe I would never write anything. Now I try to like write a lot more there. Yeah. And then at some point, um, if I have time to try to go through, try to go through the book, see where I wrote things and then write that in some notebook. Right. And, uh, because it, there is like just, just going through that, that exercise of looking what you highlighted can be, oh, yeah. yeah, very it's helpful. Fun. Yeah. I mean, even I was an English major in college. So like I've forgotten more books than a lot of people ever yeah. read in college. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of my professors actually recommended this, which is basically take a five by seven index card. And as you're reading the book, you're making little notes, right? You're like, all right, this character does this or like this is an <laughs> important point. And then at the end, you basically write a paragraph to your future self describing your memories of the book and what happens and like important ideas. And that can really like trigger it for yeah. you to retain but yeah. past that, like, I don't know. Yeah. No, but I remember in school, like, in, or back in Portugal, we all have to read this epic poem that is like, it's called the Luziadas. And it was okay. written by, written by a, a poet back in the day. It's about, and it's about the Portuguese going from Portugal all the way to India. Portuguese and discoveries. The Portuguese discoveries. And, and so I remember we had a version 
you had the original version, which is pretty thick, and then we also had the version that was that had annotations on the side for each for each uh, verse, uh, exactly. or, or not for all of them, but for a lot of them, and and that made such a big difference, right? Because yeah. you're reading in this in old Portuguese, uh, which by itself is already hard to tell, and then he's using he's making references that you have no clue about. <laughs> so much historical context. Yeah. In every word, almost yeah. it was right. Like, the the names of all the, right, India was not called India, so like, <laughs> right, there's everything is different, and you're reading it through the first time you go. It, it's it's it sounds great, it rhymes, yeah. but uh, but uh, you don't understand a lot of the context, the context behind it. And if you go through it, and okay, you read through it, and then on the side you have uh, all this rich content that really only adds on to to your experience and makes it much more memorable. You can map it out in your mind and 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 create much more connections. Mm. Um, it really enriches your your experience. Mm. And of course, you have this because in this case, this is an an epic poem that everybody has to read, and so there's a large incentive to to publishing the annotated version of this book that is no longer under copyright. And so yeah. there, you you can have those type of things. But yeah. for for a lot of more recent books, I think there would be, you could benefit a lot from having that to some extent, right? Where you, you can, if you want to, if you're reading through these few pages and you love what the, the author is talking about here, you want to dig, dig deeper into this topic that he's talking about right now. There should be some place where you could do that. Um, but yeah, it's just nobody has actually built this. I mean, I think that like defaults toward the blogosphere. For most people, yeah. they just like some people summarize books yeah. and yeah. like write Amazon reviews. And yeah. Do, yeah. yeah, yeah. But then the the thing there is that, and sometimes that content does exist, but the, being able to find it easily, having yeah, having no. that like in your finger fingertips, can make the whole difference, mm-hmm. right? Where even if you, yeah, maybe you could sp- do spend like a minute like searching on Google and you'll find the content there you're looking for. But if it was right there, you could you could just click and it would pop yeah. up. And you'd and you'd see it, then it'd be much more likely that you would end up reading yeah. that that content. Those, those type of things make a big difference. Being right there. Do you find that annotations sometimes are best done by someone who is not the author of a paper? I I what's interesting is that uh, well it, the the authors of the paper um, sometimes you know they are not going to know where people are going to struggle exactly. understanding the paper. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes. Uh, I remember I, when I was annotating the the Ethereum uh, white paper, yeah. right, ri- written by Vitalik. Um, I went through it and then I I emailed him, and it's super quick to reply. And, and he replied back with some of the questions that he gets the most uh, about Ethereum. Makes sense. And then, but when you're writing it, you have no clue. You, no. For you, yeah. you've worked it out in your mind. Some steps you might skip because you just uh, have internalized them by so much. So you only get, uh, you only know where people are going to struggle once you put it out there and you start getting questions. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. So sometimes the authors are not the exactly. best. Uh, Every time we talk with an author, I think it's easier for them to answer questions about their papers mm-hmm. than to annotate the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then if you have another person annotating a, a paper, I think it's easier for them because, uh, but yeah, with the authors, we see that a lot. Yeah. Uh, just ask me questions, I'll answer them. But sometimes I don't know how to enhance or add content to the to my own paper. Yeah. You guys could provide that service for sure. You could like reverse yeah. engineer clear papers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
it's kind of worth noting that this is a side project for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> uh, how, I, I mean, I have so many questions about like how you go about building this thing that's like definitely consuming a lot of your time. I mean, it has to, right? Mm-hmm. Between finding reading papers, mm-hmm. making all those like graphics and tweets and stuff that you uh-huh. guys do. Uh, how do you find that balance? Like what, what's your whole philosophy around this? Yeah. So. Yeah, it definitely takes its time. It is something that we we actively tried to do after college and while we were work while we were just before doing format reading reading papers and staying up to date. It's something yeah. that we tried to do anyway. And so, um, so we were already looking into research before as just something that we would enjoy. And then it would be it, we we found it good to have some sort of. Uh, peer pressure amongst ourselves to present papers to each other, right? Because that really uh, forces you to understand something well, right? Where I think it was fine when he has some quote where you don't understand something until you can like explain it to a freshman in college. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so that is I, I, that, that's very true. And so we we tried to do that uh, amongst each other, and then. And so then we got to Fermat and we thought, okay, maybe we can bring this, this online. And so, so we were already spending a, an healthy amount of time doing this type of stuff. Uh, but it is, uh, but with Fermat, you have to, like, w- the first version of Fermat, we, we kind of build it over the weekend and we try to just make it, um, just, just put it out there as fast as possible. And then, uh, then it's mostly like late at night. Uh, I'll be trying to fix bugs. People yeah. in Akron News don't seem to think that is a, a side project, and, and oh, they're pretty yeah, and they're pretty harsh on, <laughs> on it. So yeah, so there are definitely bugs, and sorry about that. We, we try to fix them when we have time. Yeah, uh, yeah but it, it definitely takes its time. But it's I think it's also something that all of us really like doing. And yeah. and I mean I I start looking at wikipedia articles about quantum computing and then i like spent three hours clicking on articles and articles and articles and then i found like five papers to annotate and i've produced like 10 or 15 tweets so it's something that we really enjoy doing yeah and so it's it's you know i think that's that's the real genius of it right it's like basically figuring out a way to turn your I mean, if you have the desire, exactly. turn your what would be your hobby anyway exactly. into this little and, side project. And having a forcing function because yeah. this, this type of thing is really easy to to let go, yeah. right? Because uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you might not feel like uh, understanding a paper to the point where you could annotate it. They're like it. It takes yeah. a while to to get a good grip, especially if it's not an area that you're super familiar with. Of course. And so it's not a that yeah, that's definitely not the type of effort that we just you do on a Saturday night, right? Unless you add a forcing function that you that you know that that uh, in, within a couple of weeks you're going to be putting yeah. this to a lot of people. That's my favorite part of the podcast. Like yeah. with the software stuff, it's pretty easy for me to just like it could be anyone in the room and we can do a podcast. But when we do physics ones or anything or math or something, I'm just like, oh my god, I have to take a couple of days just reading because yeah. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I'm not obviously I couldn't even become an expert if I dedicated yeah. a week to it, but I want to be conversant to a certain extent, yeah. and that part's fun. Yeah, yeah same with us. Like you definitely feel the pressure when you're writing these annotations. Yeah, because people and people will call you up on it and be like, <laughs> okay, this is wrong. <laughs> or you missed this. And so when you're writing it, you want to be really careful, make sure that, that what you're saying is correct. And, and you know that you might have 
some somebody that actually uh, a college kid or whoever that is reading through that paper and then is going to use your annotation to to help him understand yeah. and yeah. so you have the responsibility we, we feel that responsibility towards uh, those people to to do a good job at it and and uh to when we put an annotation we want to uh, to uh, to stand by it and we want it to be of quality um yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, it's like the more you annotate a paper, this is like a circle. And the more, the more you annotate a paper, the, there are more people there are that are at the edge of starting to understand what mm. the paper is about. So you start getting more and more questions because you, the, the circle expands and then you just have more people that are like starting to understand this topic about number theory or physics or whatever. So you get more and more questions about the paper. So it's like, and then when, when do you stop explaining a certain concept? So it's like, you want to annotate a paper about number theory or number theory. Okay. Do you have to explain what a prime number is, for instance, or do you have, do you have to explain what a rational number is? So it's, it's really interesting once you start thinking about that, that like how, how deep do you go? Yeah. And, um, well, you got to be careful about those YouTube videos <laughs> then, because if you get discovered on YouTube as an explainer series, uh, good yeah. luck. People will start asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. We've done a few of those, but the, yeah. We've annotated a paper uh, that um, it was, um, I think it was a, a proof of the irrationality of the square root of two. And then um, there was there was this, um, I think it was 14-year-old kid from from Russia that because of that paper, he came out with a, an alternative proof for that. And he, he, he sent, he sent us that proof and, uh, I read the proof and it was apparently it was you know, legit. Yeah. And he still, I, I, I told him to submit that to, to, to a journal, a math journal. Uh, and I think he did it. Uh, I, I haven't heard back from him, but I, we <laughs> yeah. should reach out to him to see if, if he actually was able to publish it. So it's also nice to see, uh, you know, how we can inspire people sometimes to, to do these, these yeah, types of things. Absolutely. And, and I also think, especially with Twitter. Yeah. One of the things that we learned is that, um, learning something, learning a concept or learning a fact is really, really addictive. And we see that on Twitter almost every day. Um, people come back and we have hundreds of thousands of, 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 um, users that read, read our tweets. And, um, and I think that's why people really like when they have a good teacher and they went, when they can go to a class and, and really learn something. I think the problem is that usually, uh, that requires a lot of effort from, from, from people, you either have to go to a class or you have to read a book to learn something. And I think what we're able to do with our Twitter account was to, to, to provide that same feeling, the, the acquiring a quanta, a quantum of knowledge, but at the cost of reading a tweet, which yeah. is really, uh, easy for the reader. Sometimes it's really hard to make those tweets. It requires a lot of, of, of reading and thinking, how can you explain something with just uh, so, uh, uh, these characters and uh, an image maybe. Uh, but, uh, you know, once you get to that and once you're able to, to, to teach someone, uh, uh, a fact or, or something, uh, people really like that. And I think it's something that, you know, there, there shouldn't, there should be more people exploring that on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. a very particular medium. Um, but there's a lot of people that, uh, that, that are, uh, attracted by that. You, you, you might not, uh, yeah, you might not, uh, a few years ago, I, I would have been very surprised, but now you have yeah, all of these uh, scientific, or be it explainers, but you have people that have millions of followers 
and uh, what they're following for is for scientific content or they just want to learn. Yeah. And so that, that's something very uplifting that we've, that we've learned that there's a lot of people out there that want to learn. I think it's too easy to get down on those people. Yeah. They're just like, Oh, you know, this is like base. It's fun facts or whatever. But mm-hmm. like at the end of the day, like that's good. Yeah. Like, people are excited to learn. They want to learn. Yeah. And then you like extrapolate it out a little bit more and you look at someone like Dan Carlin doing the hardcore history podcast. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I think if you had objectively like written that down, you're like, all right, I'm going to produce 25 hours of content about the cons and people are going to be into it. I would have told you no fucking way. Yeah. And then you look at it and it's like millions and millions and millions of downloads. Yeah. Like, that's pretty cool. There's some things that you look at it and it really catches you by surprise. I mean, this is parallel, but it, it's like Wikipedia, for instance. If you, somebody had pitched Wikipedia to me before Wikipedia existed, yeah. I would have never guessed that it would be possible. Yeah. Because you, right? Like, how are you going to do this? Like, no incentive, just, just, People are going out of goodwill. They're going to add content to it and it's going to be good content, reliable things that you can use to learn. Um, and, uh, that's just uh, right. That, that's not something that, that you would initially think would fit with human nature. Mm. Um, but, uh, people surprise you uh, yeah. for uh, positively, right? And the same goes for like stack overflow, yeah. like people just out of goodwill, they will go out and explain. Uh, you know, or try to help you solve your problems. Like there's, there's something to be said that like humans have like some, yeah. some, some untapped fountains of good will <laughs> that, uh, that might, but we might not be leveraging as much as we could. Yeah. You know, you see bright spots here and there and th- like Wikipedia or Stack Overflow, it's some projects that if you pitched them to me before they existed, I would be very skeptical yeah. that they would be able to exactly. get to the point that they are today. Of all the parallel universes, we are in the universe where Wikipedia exists. Exactly. There's got to be a lot of parallel universes where, <laughs> where Wikipedia doesn't yeah. even survive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. I mean, it's like when you talk about you guys expanding, you almost don't have to over-engineer the incentive mechanism. You know, if, if you believe that is true, yeah. right? Like annotating more papers is objectively interesting exactly. to people. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah, for sure. We have people, I think... Um, you know, we'll always have people that are going to be interested in consuming the content and reading. Um, then you have the other side. How do you create incentives for people to annotate the papers? I right. think that's a different, a different game. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, some things is just that it takes some time and we are totally, when we started this, we, we, we knew that it would take time until people cared at all about what you were doing. And then it takes even more time to make any sort of impact on the issues that we care about. But, uh, but for a lot of these things, even say, if you look at archive, um, archive was started in like, it's, it's my age. So it's like started in August, 1991. Um, and, uh, it has taken a long time to get to where it is today. And if you look at the graph of submissions for archive, it's completely almost linear. Yeah. yeah. It's, there's no startup exponential autistic <laughs> growth, growth. It's like completely linear, but it's arguably one of the things that has had the most, uh, or that has impacted, uh, yeah. the making of science or the, the distribution of science the most, but it just, you, it, it just took a while to mm-hmm. grow and, uh, and it seems like it's just going to keep growing linearly. But sometimes that's that's what you need, mm-hmm. and so so we are totally mindful of that, and we we know that like this might take a really long time until you can get to do what your what our ultimate vision is, and 
to build that out. But you know, some things they just take yeah. some time. So do you feel do you feel pressure to to achieve like profitability or even like sustainability in the business? At we, all? not at all. We never really thought about that. Yeah, because uh, because uh, also probably because this is a side project. Yeah, we never really thought about. Um, monetizing or or, or or achieving profitability it, it is like for some of these communities um you know or like like stack overflow it's it's a for-profit company and i think it does a great job at what it does and uh, and i'm probably happy that it is a, a for-profit company because just, they're just more independent and if if they have um, a good leadership that takes it in the right direction, it's great because they can. They don't need donation to ask for donations to to keep going. Wikipedia is a nonprofit and and they've been doing great. So it's possible to do it both ways. We've just because we have very limited resources, uh, we try to focus all of our attention in in the areas that are the most important to into what we're trying to achieve. So. Um, so, right. So that means like we have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. And so meaning like our next step is going to be building the Chrome extension for archive versus doing anything else because we think that's, that's what has the biggest impact. Um, so that's why we, we never delved into, uh, profitability and we just paid the costs ourselves. It's just server costs because we're, we do all the work. So it's never something that, that has been in, in our minds a lot. And we think you could build these type of platforms. Either for profit or non profit. So yeah, just something we will kind of defer it further down and into the future. It's a good question. For instance, could have uh, archives survived if they were a startup, for instance? If, yeah. Right. If they were for profit. Yeah. Right. Or, could they could or, they uh, raise money with that kind of linear exactly. growth? If they were yeah. not inside a university. Right. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. I mean, plenty of companies without, you know, startup growth raise money and become profitable or sustainable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. But you're just like, okay, what are you going to charge for to get yeah. people to care? Because, uh, yeah, I mean, Archive is great because it's open. Exactly. Right. And so many other journals exactly. may be dying out yeah. because they're not. Yeah. And absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the trends that we've also noticed is a lot of, a lot of people building journals on top of Archive. Um, and, mm. and we are even uh, collaborating with, with, um, with a few journals, one of them being the Quantum Journal, which is a, an overlay journal on top of Archive um, on the, the quantum physics category. And uh, what they do is basically, um, so what is a journal is just a list of uh, links to papers in so they don't have any uh hosting co no costs they yeah. just have a page where they just have the links to all the papers that they decided right. to publish and all the papers are on archive so it's completely open yeah. uh and what we are we we they they what we our partnership with them is basically all the papers they have the uh, formats library commenting interface uh, but we are seeing more and more of these uh, journals popping up so for instance the erdos uh, discrepancy mm -hmm. solution was published on a, uh, one of these open journals uh, called Discrete Analysis. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's totally possible that these open, open journals get to a point where they, they have, um, you know, re a reputation like science or nature. Uh, as long as you convince people to, 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 you know, publish the, their papers on these journals, it's, it's, there's nothing about science or nature that, that, um, you know, is unique to them and that prevents these, these open yeah. journals to get yeah. to, to, to that point. Yeah. Of course, it's also going to take time. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, but I think it's, it's totally possible. Yeah, exactly. It is, um, 
I mean, a lot of people talk about this, right? Where you have journals that, that put content behind paywalls and that content might have been funded uh, with public funds. And, and so, right, there's that whole discussion mm -hmm. about that. And it is a, a, a tricky system to get out of because it is sort of in a stable equilibrium to a sense, right? Because if you're a researcher, you need that publication in, in nature or whatever to mm -hmm. get your postdoc position in a, in a renowned university. And so you have incentives for, for the, for the status quo to persist, mm -hmm. but, um, there are a few ways that you, that you could get out of it, right? As Louise was mentioning, one, one way is to, for these open journals to start gaining more reputation, right? And to, so that if, okay, getting published in discrete analysis, it's a big deal. It has, it has a lot of reputation attached to it. And once that starts to happen, like you get more and more people just putting it all out there and, and on archive and, and publishing it all in, in open journals. Um, the other ways that you could, that the, you could get out of the system would be to, for, for specific fields like what we were talking about in machine learning, where you have an incentive to publish as fast as possible because the field is just moving so quickly. And um, and if you and nowadays journals or big conferences might take it years might take, sometimes to, yeah we were a lot a lot of time for submitting it until it actually gets out there right mm -hmm. if you're submitting to NIPS or, or or whatever for machine learning it takes a long time for it to to actually be officially published and so you also have an you have that incentive that if you if it's open publication you can move much much faster and so. It is a sort of a tricky equilibrium to get out of, and that's why these companies that like make billions of dollars yeah. in revenue. And, and and for instance, one way to get out of it was just, and and I think it's it's one of the ways that they are probably, um, you know, it's probably the way to 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 um, get these open open journals to to be as as popular as as nature or, or science is to convince. Um, really people that already have a tenure or really famous scientists to publish on those journals. You already have your position. You already have your Fields Medal, your Nobel Prize. Just publish on 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 an open journal. And that's what Terence Stout did with the Earth's discrepancy. And I think that's what other people are doing. Um and Tim Gowers, which is the 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 uh, it's a field medalist also uh, this mathematician uh, which founded the discrete analysis open journal and I think he, he wrote a blog post uh, uh, a while ago and his mission was to convince famous mathematicians and, and people in these um, situations to publish on open journals. Yeah, because for the, right for the young researcher that is trying to get a position in an uber competitive for sure. uh, field, then you you need right because if you want to get your postdoc in a renowned university, you need to have that. Right. So that's that's what's keeping it exactly. alive. So these big names endorsing the. The open journal. I think that's going to be the growth act to to increase the reputations of of these open journals. Absolutely, totally. and it, it was interesting because because uh, it is it is a problem, and it, and we definitely believe that that's the right direction. And, and while you're in the U.S., right, like at, while I was studying at MIT, you don't even realize it because if you're within the MIT network, everything is open. Yeah, right. So you just you're accessing it. And when I was an undergrad, I didn't even realize. Oh, in this, other words, if you're literally on the MIT Wi-Fi, yeah, you exactly. have access to these journals and, that are paywalled, and you don't even see. Okay, this is would be thirty dollars if I was like five blocks down that yeah. way. 
but Luis was studying in Portugal, and so yeah. we would talk, and then you'd compare, like even like <laughs> even yeah. in Portugal, where where right you have um, well-funded universities, right. but they just the research groups might not be able to afford all exactly. the journals, and so you just sometimes you just have a lot of trouble accessing research. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this is not in the US, it is like big institutions have access to it, but mm -hmm. like in a, a lot of other parts of the mm -hmm. world, the fact that a lot of research is being published in non-open journals has a significant impact. Yeah. Well, especially when like legit CS papers are written by people who aren't associated with any university. Right, they're just like hobbyists exactly. writing things. Like, yeah. why would they have a hundred yeah. journal subscriptions? Exactly, it's impossible. Never. Yeah, exactly. I remember even like researchers in my other researchers in my research group. Sometimes they would have to go through CERN uh, to to yeah, to VPN get through CERN, VPN through CERN uh, to to get access to these papers. Yeah. yeah. Or like I would have to email you and ask you to <laughs> send me send some PDFs. PDFs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a good brother. <laughs> yeah. I contributed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Five bucks. <laughs> um, cool. So if uh, if someone wants to contribute or help out, what can they do to help you guys? There are, I think there are a few ways that you can help us out. Um, you can annotate a paper on Fermat's library. <laughs> and so email us, team at Fermat's library. <laughs> exactly. If you want to annotate a paper there. Um could spread the word, and if you're at a university, then uh, exactly. we are. Um, if you have a journal club, yeah. uh, if if you if you have a research group and you want to annotate papers and and share them among your your peers, um, when you create an account on Fermat, like now you can also upload your own papers. Mm. It doesn't right? You have that option, and then you can share with whoever. You can create your own lists and. And so we have people in, at universities that, that use us already, like our, be it for classes and students have to read papers. And so they, they will post annotations on format or just within research groups and they all decide to read a paper. And so if you're at a university, um, like, and if you want to use this, it's completely free. So you just need to sign up. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are the two main ways, uh, that you can help us out. We're also taking cryptocurrency donations, <laughs> okay. uh, so <laughs> there's that. Uh, but but really, like, or most of our costs are just server costs because it's all yeah. it's all. So we don't have to pay salaries to anybody. So um, yeah, so that's about it. That's the way to to help us. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.